You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Today's episode of Arn is brought to you by me, SaveWithConrad.com. And as the holiday season has approached us, man, I am committed to helping you make this the best Christmas ever. How's this for starters? No house payments in December or January. That's right. This year can be different. Don't put Christmas on a credit card. Instead, skip your next two house payments and come February, you're going to have a better mortgage. And I'm talking to you. If you're in a 30 year loan, maybe you've got credit card debt, a second mortgage. If you've got any of those boxes to check, let me tell you, man, it's not a matter of if I can save you money. It really is a matter of how much, and maybe best of all, you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. So if we can't save you some cash, we won't waste your time. Find out how much money you can save right now for free at savewithconrad.com. And oh, by the way, we're licensed in more than 40 states. So if you'd like to save money each and every month on your monthly payment or pay your house off faster and save tens of thousands of dollars worth of interest, maybe you've got some credit card debt. We can make that go away right now. Find out how easy it is to save money for your family with my family, savewithconrad.com. That's savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084. here on Westwood one this Tuesday and every Tuesday on your ride to work, tell a friend to hit that subscribe button to hear the hall of famer, the founder of the four horsemen, the enforcer himself, double a Arn Anderson. Arn, how are you, man? Hello, Conrad. I'm doing great. Uh, could, before we get started, could I just give one little shout out to everybody that came down to see me in Louisville over the weekend. I sure appreciate it. We had a blast. I think everybody had a good time and just want to say thank you for that. And if you haven't already pick up your tickets this weekend, there's a lot going down in Winston Salem, North Carolina. It's WrestleCade, And after the matches, you'll be able to see the very first live Arn show and ask Arn anything you like, check it out right now. Tickets are on sale for just 30 something bucks. If you want to do a meet and greet, get Arn to sign something, whatever you'd like, that's available too. check it out at arnshowlive.com. It's WrestleCade weekend right there in Winston-Salem. You don't want to miss it this Friday. Tickets are on sale now, arnshowlive.com. Hope you have a great Thanksgiving, but uh, why not keep the tradition of professional wrestling and Thanksgiving together and make a trip to WrestleCade this weekend. Uh, Let's get into Survivor Series, man. That's our topic today, Survivor Series 1988. And what a big show this was. It's your first WWF pay-per-view, and we even... Let fans ask questions. Stay tuned till the end to see if we ask your question. If you want to ask a question anytime here on the show, just follow us on Twitter at the Arn Show. 
I guess we'll start at the beginning, November 24th, 1988, Richfield Coliseum, Richfield, Ohio, right outside of Cleveland. It draws about 13,500 fans. Does a pay-per-view buy rate of 2.82. Uh, pretty good numbers, man. This is the golden era of pay-per-view and this is your first pay-per-view with the WWF. And we've talked in our archives. If you'd like to check those out by all means, please do orangeshow.com about you leaving the NWA and you and Tully Blanchard make your way to the world wrestling federation. At this point, I guess you've been with the company a little over two months. And, uh, we've talked a lot about the fact that Bobby Heenan was paired with you guys. He's going to be your manager and you're going to call yourself the brain busters, but you're also a part of the bigger Heenan family stable. We, uh, we touched on the name brain busters last week in the Q and a, but what'd you think of the name brain busters? It didn't bother me. It wasn't cartoonish. Um, I think matter of fact, I'm sure just from the reaction and everyone in the arena sticking four fingers in the air. Um, and it wasn't because we enticed it because we weren't allowed to do that. But I think the horseman thing was so deeply embedded, you know, it didn't matter what they called us. We were always going to be the horsemen in our minds and in the audience minds. I want to ask, um, this is gotta be an adjustment. You know, you have grown up in the territory system. You found a home with Jim Crockett promotions. The NWA has reached new heights under Jim Crockett. And it feels like that's, you know, the absolute big leagues. And you certainly told us that every time you got behind the microphone on that TBS set, but now you're in New York. When you're sort of comparing the culture of the companies, how would they compare in 1988? Well, you know, I, I was still scarred from the fact that we had to make that decision. It wasn't one that we made easily or without a lot of thought. And uh, I thought I was going to be in Jim Crocker promotions forever. And then things took a turn. And, uh, we made the decision to go to the WWF uh, with a lot of conversation behind it. And we knew it was going to be starting over, but we also were very confident in our abilities. And when we got there, it was totally different. You had a lot more guys on the crew. It was a lot more production values than I'd ever seen before. Things were done a different way. We had a separate day to do interviews for Jim Crockett. Did them on Wednesday. We did interviews, local interviews for WWF when we got to TV. So we would try to get there early, be the first ones uh, in line to do our promos and get those things done. We wanted to make sure they were done properly. And uh, it was just a whole different mindset, a whole different way of doing business. You did TV every three weeks. Think about that every three weeks and there was nothing in between. So that alone was really, really different. I mean, did you prefer that or is, is the, the, the travel so much more grueling that you preferred the idea that we're always have this one home spot, you know, every week for TV? Well, it, here was the, you know, it took a minute to figure this out. A lot of people would have been, you know, Hey, if you get to TV, you don't have to work. A lot of guys were happy about that. It didn't take but a minute to figure out if we only do TV every three weeks and we're not anywhere on this 
33 match card and that's about what it was we would film 33 matches or so in that city and they would break it down and make three television shows out of it if you weren't on tv you weren't going to be on tv for three weeks out of sight out of mind and that ain't good yeah that, that's a great point you know i don't really think about you know, I, I've heard the narrative that some guys didn't mind not being on TV, but to your point, that means you're effectively off TV for a month, which obviously diminishes your value. And we should mention, you know, TV is certainly a big deal in 2019, but it was a much bigger deal in 1988. You know, the, uh, the internet didn't exist. Cell phones didn't exist the way they do now. You know, it was more of a bag phone. If you had one, uh, this was a, a much different America. And TV was king, fair to say? Absolutely. TV was your money. That's how you made your money. It's the only way you could get over was on TV. If they didn't know who you were walking through the curtain, um, you know, at a house show, you would go through that period of who's this guy and what's he all about. If you're on TV, I already know who you are and what you're all about. Pretty simple formula, but it's, very true. How are you acclimating to the locker room two months in? You've mentioned before that your your old pal Barry Darso, who's now part of Demolition, he's there. You got you know a handful of the other guys from your territory days. But by and large, are you welcomed? Is it a good fit? Are you guys staying to yourself? Do you make fast friends with some new guys? What do you recall? Well, it's you know I think Barry paved the way. Um, as far as doing what he could do to go, you know, hey, these, you know, these guys are okay. Tully was going to have some residual heat because he's just Tully Blanchard. That's it. I mean, he is a heels heel, and uh, the fact that his dad at one point owned the territory, not knowing if some of those guys worked for his dad or what their leftover feelings would be about it, Tully had some heat, but it was. With everybody, the fans, the boys, you name it. And he just carried himself very cocky. And I'm sure had things not have went down the way they did go down, which I'm probably skipping ahead here, but when uh, the Rougeos got in the fight with uh, Dynamite, that was our first day of television. We were just walking in the door, in the back door, for our first day of TV, almost like it was scripted, that thing went down. I mean, immediately. That's the first thing we walked into. So after that, there was a meeting. Vince called a meeting, and I guess there was ribbing that had led to this over extended period of time. So Vince put an edict down. That's it, guys. That's it on the ribbon. Ribbon will not be tolerated, period. So I think if anybody had anything in mind for us as far as ribbing us to acclimate us and however you want to put it, um, bring us into the fold, it all got shut down that day. So that could have been a timing issue that benefited us. Who knows? Let's talk a little bit about um, the travel you know, you've told us, you gave us sort of the cliff notes version, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in more detail another time that 
ultimately the reason you make the decision to leave the WWF and go back is because you had young kids and you were on the road all the time. And you just felt like you were missing too many of those moments, basically because of the increased schedule compared to what you enjoyed for Jim Crockett two months in, are you already getting the feeling that, Hey, I'm going to be working a lot more, or is it still so new and fresh and fun that that negativity maybe hadn't set in yet? Well, I knew immediately it was a lot going to be a lot tougher, but the bigger picture is we had had a handshake deal and a verbal promise of making more money and it being just nothing but uphill from day one with that company. So we were still on that high. And up to that point, he was a man of his word. We were being treated real well. The fact that was, though, every single morning, 6 a.m. flight. And if you missed that flight for any reason, that piece of paper, and back then there were paper tickets, was totally worthless. You had to purchase a whole nother ticket. There wasn't like paying a fee or anything. Those tickets were so cheap, and it was group tickets, they were next to worthless. Right. So so that's a lot of pressure, you know. You know, everybody's going to sleep in at some point, especially if you're on last, if you've got a bit of a drive to drive to the next town where you can where there's an airport, you end up getting two hours sleep. It's pretty easy to miss that 4.30 wake-up call or 4 o'clock or whatever it was to make a 6 o'clock flight. So it was very demanding. Yeah, I can imagine that uh, that takes some adjusting. I guess we should remind everybody, tell everybody, you know, what your travel schedule was like with Jim Crockett. You know, you're talking about 6 a.m. commercial flights here, but with Jim Crockett, sometimes the territories were short enough you could make a drive. Other times you're on Crockett's jet. It's it's not apples to apples, fair to say? Oh, no. My God, it was anything but. When I first got to Jim Crockett, everything was drives, and there were some there were some issues with their scheduling. Um, there were some very, very, very long rides and some that just didn't make any sense, but there were all drives at that point. Then when business caught on fire, they bought the first plane. Um, anything that was like 350 miles and above, we would get on the plane. And uh, that's the difference in you know, going through some of these back roads in North Carolina and South Carolina and Virginia and mountain roads. It took uh, to drive that trip. That's, you know, five, six-hour trip each way. Nothing to sneeze at. Um, but it was just, you know, the hotter the company got and the planes and all the structuring and all that, it really, what a blessing, especially when they added the second plane, which financially was probably very stupid, but that's a 10-seat Falcon jet up and down, buddy. You're talking... That was a piece of machinery, and that—that uh, that was. Uh, I remember one night we got in uh, St. Louis, and we had like a hundred mile an hour tailwind, and we're flying to Atlanta for TV the next day. And I want to say we flew from St. Louis to Atlanta in about an hour and fifteen minutes which is hauling ass pretty good, and uh, that was one of the benefits. That Crockett had over WWF, and buddy, 
it was nothing. And I'm not kidding. For us to have, we would get our stack of tickets, and I'll never forget this routing. This was one loop, like a five-day loop. It was Boston out to L.A., L.A. back to Miami, Miami to Kansas City, Kansas City back to Uniondale. Now, what sense that made, God only knows. But you're talking about long flights, connections, issues, incredible. Uh, and it w- they would hand you that with no remorse and say, here you go. It's uh, a lot different. And we should mention, you know, it's not just, you know, flying with Crockett versus flying with Vince. One's private, one's commercial. A lot of our listeners, myself included, have never flown private. But I imagine that's a little different than going through the traditional airport rigmarole. You bet it is. You don't have any any of the issues of uh, airlines being overbooked, being stuck in a little bitty seat. Uh, you know, you're talking about guys that are 200 to 300 pounds. And if you've ever looked at a coach seat, it's about uh, 12, 15 inches across. Just look at this. Next time you fly on a commercial flight, look at the seat in front of you and measure the width. They don't care. They're getting richer, that being the airlines. And uh, every seat on both the planes were oversized seats, comfortable as it could possibly be, all kind of uh, adult beverages for after the show, all kind of soft drinks and everything, bathroom. You could get up anytime you wanted. You had a big, nice bathroom on both planes, food, Everything. It's a whole different experience flying uh, private. Talk to me a little bit about the NWA product. You know, you leave two months prior to this pay-per-view. Are you still watching their television at all? I mean, I know you're on the road all the time. Are you trying to catch tapes of it when you can? Or are you, is that in the rearview mirror and you don't really care at this point? I flung gravel on it in the rearview mirror way back never looked at a show didn't care made a commitment to the new company we were dead set on i thought that was my last move of my career that that was it i'm gonna settle in here you know the world is their oyster they're they're expanding they're running three towns a night sometimes i'm set i wasn't i could care less what they were going back into turner did you have any extended friends or family who, you know, in your real life, who, um, for whatever reason viewed the WWF as, as the quote, more big time and felt like it was a really big deal for you to be a part of Vince McMahon's outfit compared to Jim Crockett's. Well, uh, everybody in the back of their head, there was a saying back then, I'm going to go to New York. Everybody knew what you mean. It wasn't, I'm going to go to the WWF. When a guy was going to head that way, it was, hey, I'm going to New York. And we we heard the salaries. We heard them from enough people that we believed that the chance to make buku money 
was there if you were positioned properly, the right place on the big pay-per-views. The merchandise was absolutely ridiculous. Iron Sheik, $80,000 for a doll, for a action figure for a quarter. That's for a, that's for a quarter. The, the money that we were hearing about was just unbelievable. And you would, you know, you would get bits and pieces and we weren't long enough to ever get positioned in that money slot, which as a team, you were never going to be there anyway, because Vince looked at teams as a semi-main event only at best. He never looked at teams being in the main event. And he also, it was like one, instead of one big payoff, it was one big payoff divided by two. Right. If you had a manager there, divided by another, you know, head. So it, uh, you knew the potential was there. You just had to get in the right position. And uh, everyone in the industry pretty much realized that was the top shelf deal. That was, we heard about the WrestleMania payoffs and all that. And you knew it was possible. You just had to somehow get the, in that position. Talk to me a little bit about, I mean, I'm loving the, the rabbit hole we're going down here, you know, from the, the pop culture perspective, you know, Vince McMahon had, had managed to not only have, you know, as you said, the, the action figures and, and, and he's on the lunch boxes, but he's also got pop culture, you know, he's, he's managed to get Hulk Hogan on the cover of sports illustrated and Hulk Hogan on Saturday night live. And, you know, there is a Hulk Hogan rock and wrestling cartoon and he's partnered with MTV and he had definitely embraced, um, the mainstream and the mainstream had embraced him rather. And, and he had become his, his creation had become part of pop culture in a way that very few other brands do like. Even today, when people talk about wrestling, they, they sort of just call it WWE. If you're a non-wrestling fan, you refer to MMA as the UFC and they say, oh, well, he's into that ultimate fighting. Well, it's actually mixed martial arts and people say, oh, that's a WWE move. Well, it's actually a pro wrestling move. That's a company, but people had started to associate his brand with an entire industry. And much like when people say, oh, I'll have a Coke is Pepsi fine. Oh yeah, that's fine. The guy really just wanted a soda, but he, he ordered a Coke and bandaid is a brand and Kleenex is a brand. Did you feel like being a part of that brand was going to make you a more, uh, and I know this may not have ever been your aspiration, but you had a bit, a better chance to be a quote unquote star with Vince than you did at Crockett. Well, the one thing you couldn't deny is when you would go up north and you would go to Boston and you would go to New York City and, and whatever event was running up there and you would go do your normal thing during the day. You'd go to the hotel, check in, you get your rental car, and you'd go to the gym, you'd go find a restaurant, get something to eat. All the normal things you did during the day, you were so much higher profile being on that TV in that area of the country. It made you a bigger star certainly being on that television, even though we had buku time on WTBS. Everybody didn't have WTBS back then. It wasn't like it was part of your package. So there was areas of the com of the country. Certainly in Canada, you were a bigger star. 
places like that, you would go overseas, you would be a bigger star because the television was so strong. It was just unbelievable. Um, so you could you could feel yourself becoming higher profile just from the fact of being on that TV. Let's talk a little bit about um, the NWA again, because in in November, Ted Turner is going to buy Jim Crockett Promotions. You had talked about you know the the leading up to this, where Tully had given his testimony to some Turner execs, and maybe that annoyed David and and, and Jimmy. When you finally hear, "Hey, the sale happened," what's your feeling now that you know you're out of there? Because beforehand you you've sort of shared with us in the archives which are available for download now you weren't sure hey are they going to come in and buy this thing or are we going out of business because something's got to give when you hear that they bought it is there a tinge of i wish i would have waited to see what that looked like or does that not exist at all well timing is everything and they said when they said out of one side of their mouth Turner, we're pretty sure Turner's going to buy the company. That was a huge positive. But when they went, "Mm, or we may have to file bankruptcy. Well, that was like blowing a damn tuba in my ear. That went to a whole different level of conversation. Because if they filed bankruptcy, now what do you got? You got a company that's immediately going to have to be broken up and all those jobs are going to have to be filled somewhere. There weren't enough lifeboats. I wasn't going to wait, you know, to see one way or the other. I had a family to take care of. Who's going to give me the stability? Who's going to stick their hand out and go, hey, you're set. Uh, so, you know, I never look back. Tully never looked back. We started hearing about guys that were that they were signing to ridiculous amounts of money down there to, to come in and they'd do one or two TVs and you wouldn't see them again for three months. That irritated me a little bit, but uh, that's all it was. I knew you couldn't fix it. I had made my decision. I had to do the best I could with the cards I was dealt. Let's talk a little bit about uh, your old friends that are still down there. Rick's still down there. Are you still in any sort of regular communication with him or anybody else when you're on the road with the WWF and your new job? Nope. Occasionally we would have, you know, Rick would call us from some hotel or somewhere he'd be drinking or something. And, you know, the usual, uh, it was just one of those fun, loud, a lot of noise, screaming, Sure. Stuff in the background. You can barely make out what they're saying. Um, I mean, we stayed in touch, but it wasn't a weekly thing or it wasn't, might've been a monthly thing more so because he had a lot on his plate down there as well. Starting, you know, with new ownership and I'm sure having to prove his worth to all those guys down there, as crazy as that may sound. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't a regular. Remember, there weren't cell phones back in those days that they have now. I mean, they were around, but they were the size of a freaking lunchbox. Let's uh, talk about when you're getting going here. Your first match in the company is October 5th, 1988, Fort Wayne, Indiana. You and Tully are going to get a win over Bob Emery and Tommy Angel. 
And from there, you're going to keep working these house show loops on your way to the survivor series, usually against the young stallions who believe it or not, one of which is your, your future tag team championship partner, Paul Roma. And, uh, he's tagging with Jim powers here. He would also work a few times against the rockers, a very young Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty. What are your memories of these early house show loops against the young stallions on the rockers? Well, there's a very, very big conversation that went down, uh, after our first house show match with, uh, Roma and, uh, his partner, the young stallions, um, Jim, uh, I didn't know there was an hierarchy there. I didn't know there was an unwritten rule. But apparently Vince had told Darso and Bill Eady that uh, his plans were eventually for Tully and I to work with those guys. So unbeknownst to us, just working like we had always worked, and I've expressed many, many times what's the mentality of, of being a horseman and what makes you a horseman and what was our mentality? Well, our mentality was to go out and take the situation we were given and have the best match possible, period. Well, that Barry and Bill didn't want us to have the best match possible with Jim and Roma because of where they were positioned, which was underneath. So when we came back through the curtain expecting someone to say, hey, good match, guys, because the audience got with it, and now I see why. Apparently, you know, guys that were further up the ladder just didn't go out with guys that were positioned lower at that time and have that competitive of a match. So he said, uh, as soon as I came through the curtain, he grabbed me and said, he being Barry, and said, come over here. So what the hell's the matter with you guys? You guys are going to work with us down the road. You can't be bumping around for those guys. Well, I saw he wasn't kidding, and Barry and I had never had a crossword. This wasn't a crossword. It was a matter of fact. You want to work with us? We're the top team here. Cut that shit out. You didn't have to tell me but once. Um, We started to figure out how much to sell for which team and who was positioned where and where they were heading with, with whoever. And it was an hierarchy there. And, uh, you kind of had to know where your, those guys were going or you were going to, to know how to, you know, no one was going to come up and tell you that that was a friend that told me, Hey, too many bumps. It wasn't somebody from the office. It wasn't, you know, they would let you self-destruct up there. You know, that was just part of the, you know, uh, humor. Sometimes there were so many, so many unwritten rules and so many things going down in that company that were never talked about, but just happened. And uh, so. Forgive me for being ignorant, but wouldn't there have been an agent who would have smartened you up to that? And clearly they didn't. Who would have been the agent in that era for your matches? Well, I mean, Jack Lanza was salt of the earth. You know, you had him, you had uh, Rene Goulet, you had uh, Chief. You had a lot of them, but, you know, it wasn't as detailed then because everybody that worked there just about were top guys from another company, another territory. They would just come in, hey, uh, brain busters, over 10 minutes or 
thumbs down, 10 minutes. And that's all the information you would get. Uh, if you wanted more time the next night, you would go ask them. They would tell you. Um, but no, I mean, it was, you know, it was, I don't know if they were even watching the matches sometimes. Who, who knows? Um, but you would think someone would go, hey, they got bigger plans for you guys. Wasn't that way. All right, guys, as you know, by now, today's episode is sponsored by Blue Chew. Remember the days when you were always ready to go? Well, now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed. So listen up, bluechew.com, and that's blue like the color. Blue Chew is going to bring you the first chewable with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as both Viagra and Cialis. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. And since they're chewable, they can work up to twice as fast as a pill. So you can be ready whenever an opportunity arises. If you could benefit from a little extra confidence where it counts, Blue Chew is the fast and easy way to enhance your performance. In fact, Blue Chew is prescribed online by licensed physicians. So you don't have to go to the doctor's office or wait in line at the pharmacy. And it ships right to your door in a discreet package. They're made in the USA. And since Blue Chew prepares and ships direct, they're cheaper than a pharmacy. And best of all, there's no more awkwardness. Right now, we've got a special deal for our listeners. Visit bluechew.com and get your first shipment for free when you use our promo code ARN. Just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's B L U E C H E W.com. And our promo code is ARN to try it for free. Blue Chew is the better, cheaper, faster choice. And we thank them for sponsoring today's podcast. Let's talk a little bit about the rockers. You had some early matches with them back in this era. They were, uh, known for partying and maybe, uh, rubbing some of the older guys the wrong way. I think famously, uh, they had an issue with Andre and a few other guys. It, it wasn't always the smoothest road for the rockers. What were your matches like with them here in 88? Now, is this prior to us shooting the angle and working with them everywhere? Yeah, this is as soon as you come in, first six weeks you're there. Just a tester, yeah. pretty much. Uh, I knew right away they were something special. Um, you know, they were both so athletic. They had a routine down that was so much more involved uh, athletically. Uh, I had came from working with the Rock and Roll Express, who I've expressed many times. I loved plus all the other great baby faces I had the opportunity to work with in NWA. These guys were special. And, man, for whatever reason, one of the reasons was probably Shawn Michaels, where he grew up, was out in the San Antonio area, and he grew up loving or hating Tully Blanchard, whichever way you want to look at it. I've heard him say on record, you know, Tully was the first guy that he really gravitated to when he was a fan as a heel, um, that he respected, disliked, saw the, uh, ability, all those things. And for whatever reason, they trusted us. And, uh, we assured them all we had was the, now we knew we were going to go out and tear the joint down with these guys after the first night. We went, hey, if we get our ass chewed out, we get our ass chewed out. I'm not wasting this opportunity. And they weren't positioned that well then either. Um, but man, after, you know, just going out and pretty much just taking 20 or 25 minutes, 
that we weren't designated originally to have coming back through the curtain, then you started to hear the agents perk up. Good job, man. Good job. And you could tell when you would get back to TV, Vince might call you in and go, hey, you know, getting really good reports on you guys. And everything was full steam ahead. One of the things I've, I wanted to ask about is, uh, and again, I don't know anything about being a professional wrestler. I've never done anything in that realm, but we've heard as fans that WWF rings are different from other rings in that the WWF uses ropes. A lot of the other more traditional promotions use cables and that the rings were harder, that they weren't the quote unquote Southern bumping rings. And uh, I guess that means they had less give. They were a little stiffer, but also too, the size of the ring was a little bigger. Can you compare and contrast the differences and what, if any challenges that represented to you guys, you know, just a couple of months into your run here? Well, that was probably part of the reason that Barry Darso chewed my ass out. The ring was heavier. It was harder than the rings we came from. Uh, less padding, really hard over close to the ropes. The rings were bigger. So, um, you get used to a ring and like, if you're getting shot into the ropes or reversed into the ropes or reversed into a turnbuckle, you get used to a certain amount of steps and it's not something that you count in your head initially. Uh, you just get acclimated to it and it becomes automatic. It's like, I can't tell somebody how to ride a bicycle. You get on a bicycle, you just take off and okay, I'm riding a bicycle. Same thing with the number of steps that it took to cover the ring, whether you were being shot in the ropes or buckle to buckle. That took some adjusting too. Um, as far as the ropes being tighter and all that, actually they were a little bit looser. So they would kick you off a little funky. Um, it was a totally different situation, but it didn't take us very long to get used to it. Um, but that was probably a big reason that there weren't as many high spots during the course of a match. Guys were bumping all over the place because the ring was hard. We should mention that, uh, you've got a lot of your other NWA brethren here. Uh, Tim Horner comes in at the beginning of November. Harley race is there. The big boss man who used to be big Bubba Rogers. He's there. Rick Rude is here. Akeem who you knew as the one man gang, the powers of pain, Sam Houston, lots of your old brethren are there when you're having to do car trips. Are you and Tully sticking to yourself or are some of these guys piling in with you now? Well, immediately Haku uh, became good friends with us and started traveling with us immediately. And you wanted to have enough room in a car, but you know, Tully and I initially were just kind of staying on our own. We still kayfabed. It wasn't that big a deal with some of those guys, but I wouldn't show up with Tim Warner, even though he's to this day, still a friend of mine. Wouldn't show up in an arena with baby faces in a car with you. It's not the way I was raised. Uh, that's a no-no. So Haku, though, was a great third guy. He and I started healing a room together, saved some money, and um, he was a perfect fit. That was the main guy that traveled with us, and it was pretty much the entire time we were there. It was 
either the two of us or the three of us. Let's, uh, let's talk about Haku for a minute. Another member of the Heenan family. So it makes sense that he would be a part of your, your traveling group here. He winds up being sued in the month of November for an incident that happened in Baltimore where allegedly he bit the nose off of a man in a bar fight. Do you remember hearing about that? It ain't allegedly. There is a man missing a nose somewhere in the Baltimore, Washington area. I'm sure to this day. Yes. We heard all about it. I've talked about on different, uh, shows that we've had about just who and what Haku is. I think we might've discussed it last week. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, for some reason he was a magnet for every drunk that thought they could throw a sucker punch and actually do something with it. He is in his own league. He is in his own category. If he just bit the guy's nose off and that's all that happened to him because we didn't get explicit details, the guy should just call it a day and go, hey, I'm lucky. I'll breathe out of my mouth because it could have been so worse. Hako's in his own league. He is in his own category. He is an incredible athlete. He was 300-pound tank. Didn't feel any pain. And if you pissed him off, no one know, knew what he was going to do, but he knew it was going to be quick and over quickly. And we call, you know, I called him the human vegematic. He would step into a guy. You couldn't see around his back because it was so wide. And whatever he did, five seconds later, the guy looked like he had had his head shoved in a window fan. And I saw probably three instances of things like that. He's just, he's just a beast. And he's a, you know, if he was your friend, he would lay down in the road and die for you. And the same way with uh, Barbarian and his family and all the Island boys that I've met, Roman Reigns, all those guys, the Usos, they are the nicest, sweetest people, for lack of a better term. They're the best friends you could possibly have in that locker room if they're your friend. Just don't cross them because it gets ugly quickly. And that's who Haku is, forever the world champion. (laughs) Well, another world champion is going to join you guys in November. Uh, the future, Mr. Perfect, Kurt Henning is going to come in here. Uh, of course, nine years later, you guys are going to hook up, uh, as part of the whole horseman angle, which we've touched on. Uh, did you know Kurt prior to this? So did you ever meet or work with his dad? Nope. Uh, uh, never met his dad. I just seen Kurt on TV just a few times. I tell you what though, I was a huge mark for his ability in that ring. He was so different and so fun to watch. You could never, ever figure out what he was going to do next. It was just a viewing extravaganza, you know, and I didn't get excited about a whole lot of stuff, but man, that guy was so talented. He was Mr. Perfect. You never knew what he was going to do. All those things that he did on his videos and stuff, as far as hitting a golf ball or 
bow and arrow or shooting a, a basket from half court. He did all that stuff. He was one of the most talented guys that ever walked the earth and funny. He's hilarious. Um, and, uh, he would just walk up to you and he would tell you a joke and you wouldn't realize that he just zinged you until he was walking past you. It was one of those things. Oh God, that guy just blistered me. You know, one of those things. And it was just, uh, he was a very unique individual. And, uh, I think everyone knew just how special Kurt was. I don't know that he ever got his due totally. He should have been the world champion at some point for sure. Um, but man, was he good. And that's the reason I pushed for him so hard to be a horseman because he was that talented. Let's talk about another guy that we've never talked about here on the show. Allegedly, according to the rumor and innuendo, Brian Blair was brought to TV in California and asked to do a job, but he refused and was fired. Do you remember this incident or how common was this for guys to, uh, put up a fuss about the creative and be shown the door as a result. Well, yeah, you didn't do that in those days. That was the reason I wrestled Tom McGee. Tom McGee beat me. No one knew who Tom McGee was. They knew he looked great, but they had no clue who the guy was, but it was a test. And in those days, you know, Vince would test you just on random, right in the middle of, you could be in the middle of a big angle with a top guy and he would just have you go out there on a dark match and lose to somebody that made no sense. And he was just trying to constantly test and see where your head was at. And, uh, were you going to do business when you got to that big match and the main event at WrestleMania, if you got there, he wanted to know that whatever he had in mind, you weren't going to give him any, you know, crap about it. You were going to do what was asked. And, and that's, it, it was one of his ways of testing you. What do you think of his, uh, his technique with that? What do you mean? I mean, what's your opinion? I mean, you said that was his way of testing you. Did you, I mean, do you agree with that? Or do you think that's kind of silly if it doesn't make sense? Well, I wouldn't, if I was in his position, anybody that I didn't trust to do business wouldn't be working for me. There you go. I wouldn't have to do something that immature because, you know, ultimately let's just, you know, he would he would argue the point that it doesn't matter that he can make you a star anytime he wants. Well, yeah, that's true if he in fact chooses to do that. But if you're at a critical point, say you've been there just a few months and you're starting to get a little bit of notice and you're starting to get a little bit of momentum, to send you out in Boston or Madison Square Garden in front of eighteen thousand people and get beat by somebody that should have been carrying your bags in the back door it probably throws a wrench in you getting over in that particular town. And, you know, that's, that's the way I look at it because people would not, they would just kind of go silent and look at you and look at each other and shake their head. Like what the hell was that? But his opinion was, Hey, it wouldn't matter if I if you're going to be a star, I can make you one tomorrow. And he lived by that, by that credo. Let's, uh, let's get to the card here. Survivor series, 1988. Of course, we're right here. Thanksgiving is upon us. So this makes sense for us to go back and talk about, and what a good time to uh, pick up where we started, uh, with you coming to the company. Let's go through the card, Brutus beefcake and the blue blazer and Sam Houston. 
and the ultimate warrior and Jim Brunzel. What a cast of characters that is. That's one team. And they're going to take on the honky tonk man, bad news, Brown, Greg Valentine, Ron Bass, and Danny Davis. They go 17 minutes and 50 seconds. Melter's going to refer to the ultimate warrior and the observer as the anabolic warrior. Uh, the match gets two stars. What did you, uh, we haven't spent a lot of time talking, uh, you and I about Brutus, the barber beefcake. Of course we know it won't be too long and he's going to be pretty over here for the company. Uh, what is your experience like in this era working with Ed Leslie? Well, he was, he was pretty much glued to Hogan most of the time when he was there. I can tell you this. I don't remember that match, which I'm pretty sure I didn't see it because I was probably stretching and getting ready for our match. But that cast of characters, probably when it was all said and done, it was probably the indoor record for lack of bumps. <laughs> uh, honky Tonk Man, pretty famous for that. You and I haven't spent any time talking about Honky Tonk Man. The the, the Wayne Ferris character, Honky Tonk Man, is going to get all kinds of heat. Bruce Pritchard is even going to refer to him as White Hot uh, once upon a time for the WWF. You were there during that run. Uh, what do you remember about the Honky Tonk Man character and, and fans' reactions to him? Now, was Bruce talking about he was white hot with the audience? Uh, I think it was a, a heat standpoint. He had a lot of heat with the audience, but maybe you're about to tell us he had a lot of heat with the boys. Well, no. I mean, he, you know, he did his own thing. He didn't take a lot of bumps. He, uh, he was entertaining, and that was at a time that Vince loved entertainment. Not that he does it today, but, you know, Honky Tonk was good with that character, and, uh, you know, he could avoid taking a lot of bumps. He would go out and entertain you and uh, to do his thing, and he was definitely different, and it was, uh, you know, having the, the Elvis look and all that stuff, the whole thing, the whole gag was he put his heart into it. He did the best he can do with it. It got over, and uh, he was able to make a nice living being uh, the Honky Tonk Man. Uh, let's, uh, let's follow up on another guy here that we haven't spent a ton of time talking about Ron Bass. Uh, he's, he's an old school guy and uh, a lot of fans remember his angle, uh, from earlier in the year. I think it was this year, maybe it was 89 with uh, Brutus beefcake, but you probably knew Ron from the territory days, right? Well, Ron was, you know, right on his final run with Crockett when I got there. He was partners with Black Bart. J.J. was their manager. That's how early it was. So this was early 85. Ron was a big man, you know. You, you took a look at Ron Bass. He was a, he was a big physical guy and uh, had a lot of experience, had been around, worked in, you know, Tampa and probably God knows how many other territories. Big, solid, deep voice, good promo voice. And uh, I really didn't get to know Ron that much. What I did get to know, he was a gentleman and a nice guy. Always, uh, you know, spoke and didn't seem like that uh, he had any worries about his position or what your position was going to be or if you were a threat or any of those things. So really uh, came across as just a gentleman. Let's talk about, um, bad news. Brown, he's just going to walk out of this match 
and get counted out. Meltzer would say, if you'll notice every wrestler that means anything to Titan was quote unquote protected without having to do a job except Jake Roberts. And they put him in the center spotlight after losing his match. Since bad news has a feud with Randy Savage upcoming, he couldn't do a job here. Uh, we don't have to talk about the creative necessarily, but I do want to talk about bad news. Brown. Uh, he has, um, an interesting story to say the least. Uh, what do you remember about sharing a locker room with bad news in a capsule? What, what is that story? Well, just, you know, he, uh, he had a reputation for being a badass and, uh, uh he didn't lose a lot on TV and he would argue some finishes occasionally. And, uh, he once upon a time had a, a, an incident with Andre, the giant and called Andre out and Andre bagged off and he just had a reputation for being someone you didn't fuck with. That's what we always heard. Um, and we were certainly weren't going to test it. There was no reason to test it. In those days, heels were heels and baby faces were baby faces. And you kept to your, you know, whatever your designation was. Never traveled with him, would see him in the locker room. He had that game face, you know, he kept to himself, did his own thing. We always heard he was real badass. So, you know, and, and in those days, it, you know, the guys that were really the Bad News Browns, the Hakus, the Barbarians, the real badasses never barked. You never heard a peep out of them. They were never loud until somebody, you know, pushed their button and then you knew for damn sure they were in the room. Uh, I didn't hear the Andre story. That's one that I would really like to hear from somebody that was there or has good knowledge of it because nobody messed with Andre. Period. Let's uh, let's talk about the next match. You're in this one. We've got the Powers of Pain and the Rockers and the Young Stallions and the Heart Foundation, and they're going to be taking on, oh, also the British Bulldogs. God damn, there's a lot of tag teams here. They're taking on Demolition, the Rougeaus, the Conquistadors, the Bolsheviks, and the Brainbusters. And Meltzer would say this was a really great match with guys tagging in and out and going all out. And it was the pace of a hot Japanese match until the last few minutes. And he even says in his write-up, Blanchard and Anderson were the highlight of the match, particularly their first meetings with other famous tag teams like the Bulldogs, Bret Hart, and the Rockers. Uh, it comes down to uh, Bulldogs and Powers of Pain versus Conquistadors and Demolition. Ultimately, um, it's written here. Uh, then Arn signaled it was time to go home and finish all the fun. So the Rockers and Brainbusters went at it to start the feud, and both were disqualified at 27 minutes and 57 seconds and had a lighthearted brawl back to the dressing room. So this is where you get your feud kicked off, but he's very, very complimentary of your, your work here. Uh, you got a ton of time, like 33 minutes here in the match. No, my apologies. 42 minutes in this match, I think is right. Uh, three and three quarter stars, big time match, but God, this has got to be challenging when you've got 10 guys on the apron to this side and 10 guys on the apron at that side. And then obviously two dudes in the middle. So there's, there's 18 dudes on the apron. That's got to be challenging to work around. Is it not? It's the screaming shits. And let me tell you why. And for the 18 years that I was a producer, I asked periodically, not every year, but every few years, this was the one thing, if you think about it, you've got to go, well, I'll be damned. 
do you know how stupid you feel where you got this match going on and you got the whole theory of Survivor Series is when the match is over, the way you win the match is you still have members of your team surviving and there are no members of the other team left, correct? Right. That's the theme of Survivor Series. The thing I could never get past that made no sense to me is you would have a finish go down right in front of four guys who were standing there three feet away and nobody made a save. What sense does that make? Right. You would never want one of your teammates to get beat because that lessens your odds of being the sole survivor or a survivor with all your teammates or half of them or whatever. It was just one of those things that I could never get an answer to. I would, when I would ask, they would look at me and I would get that look like, ah, shit, he's trying to make sense out of an unsensible business again. But when it was all said and done, if it didn't make sense to me and I would try to go back and analyze every match I was in, okay, it wasn't a four-star match, but did it at least make sense? Maybe it was a four-star match, but did it still make sense? Was it a two-star match? Did it make sense? As long as it did, okay. With those guys, I remember vaguely what we actually did, but with all those talented guys with the hearts and the bulldogs and all those great baby faces, uh, man, we could just go in and tear the joint down. And I'm sure we just, we did. We got with those guys during the day and say, hey, man, we want to feature everybody if we possibly can. That's what we tried to do. Um, the fact that we bailed out with the Rockers, fighting to the back just kind of takes away from the action in the ring. So it was just one of the, you know, they could have beaten us that night. That would have been fine. Just let us do something once we get to the back. Maybe when the match is over, you cut to the back and we're kicking their ass in the back or something. We didn't have to do a fight all the way down the, the uh, oh, we had been beaten quite a bit, trust us. Uh, getting beat one more time by those guys wouldn't have hurt us. Your first time working with Bret Hart's got to be here, right? You wouldn't have ran across him before. No. What'd you think? You know, I mean, obviously we'll talk about not hard another time, but Bret Hart in particular known for being one of the all time best in ring technicians. Was that your testimony here in early 88? Very solid. Bret was a wrestler's wrestler. He, uh, you know, he was very talented and he wasn't a flip flop and fly guy. You know, Bret liked to mix it up and swap holes and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, made everything credible and believable. I enjoyed working with Bret. What about the Bulldogs? We've often heard as wrestling fans that Dynamite Kid was a special talent. Whenever I suggest that to Bruce Pritchard, he says, eh, I never really got it. But Bruce was never in the ring with him. You were. What say you? Well, the thing was, even though he was gassed up and jacked up and looked tremendous, he still wasn't a big guy. I put him in that category with Chris Benoit. You would look at him and go, that's a good-looking athlete, but he's not – He's not 6'3". He's not 280 pounds. How's he going to fare with these bigger guys? Once the match got started and he started laying into you, nobody questioned how big he was. They were a really good team, and uh, they didn't work like body guys. And, you know, 
when it was time to get after it, those guys would take some bumps and they would give you some bumps and they would, you know, they were very um, accommodating as far as working hard. So we enjoyed working with them. I would have loved to work with them uh, a program. Let's talk about uh, some of your tag team partners here. The Conquistadors, the Bolsheviks, the Rougeaux. Tell me about those teams as best you can. Oh, well, those, you know, it was, I didn't pay that much attention. We were just, we were put out there, uh, together with, there was really, which I guess is part of the, the allure to it at that time was just to put a bunch of random teams together. Uh, we didn't try to do anything in conjunction with those guys. And they certainly didn't try to do anything in conjunction with us. It was just do their thing and get out. And when it was time to get put out, they got put out. Um, how do you find out it's time? Is somebody giving you a seat? Is the referee communicating with someone ringside and they tell you, or I, I know you're weird about communicating some of this, so you can tell me to shut the fuck up whenever you're ready. But uh, this seems like a giant cluster when you got 20 dudes here and it's almost akin to a battle Royal the way you said, well, it's time for you to go out. But if you're in the middle of the shit, how do you keep up with that? Well, it's up to you, you know, you know, when you're going out and who's putting you out and that's really everything else. You're just calling on the fly and making it, you know, if you don't talk to guys during the day, then you get in there and end up in the ring with them. In those days, heels ran the match, period. It was up to you. If you had a great match in those days, agent would come up to you or whoever it was and they would go, you guys had a great match. Thank you. If the match stunk, the heel got his ass chewed out. It was on him. So, um, you would try to, you know, make sense of what, let's just say we were going to put out whoever, uh, whatever team you want to pick the bulldogs, Okay, how can we get them as high as we can possibly get them, and how can we use our teamwork to screw those guys? Uh, because you just didn't want to. I just want to spine buster Davy Boy Smith. My God, and count him one down, one, two, three. Right. There's no heat. There's no heat in that. And people would just look at you know, even though I did do that to Sean in one of these same matches, which he was pissed about. I think it might have been the very next year in our last pay per view there or mine. But that's for another day, another story. Um, that was what we, you would get. You're out third. Uh, be put out by the conquistadors, let's just say, whatever it was. It's up to you guys to put it together. I'm saying as far as the time cue, though, like when do you know when it's been? I mean, obviously, they've got to back time the show, and they want the show to go off the air at the same time. I don't think this is the IFB era. Is there someone at ringside on a headset who puts a pencil in his mouth or tugs his tie or something silly like that? Somebody would get word to the, uh, somebody on a headset would get word to the referee somehow. Yeah. Okay. It's so-and-so's time to go. He would just come over and Hey, time to get out. And you would take a minute or so to adjust whatever you had to do. If you were on the apron and it was your turn to go out, you'd just start screaming at whoever, you know, make it real. Hey, Give him to me. Give him to me. And the guy would know, okay, it must be his time to get out. And he would tag out. You come in, do your finish. We've often talked about with Bruce Pritchard, the, uh, essentially the, 
the road warrior ripoffs and the WWF in this era had tried to sign Hawk and animal. They were unsuccessful. A lot of fans assumed that demolition were supposed to be the road warrior ripoffs. I think Bruce would say, well, if there were road warrior ripoffs, it was the powers of pain. Uh, your friends with Barry Darso, you, you worked with the powers of pain in, in the old Crockett days. Do you think I either ne- one of these were, were road warrior ripoffs? I never worked with the powers of pain. You didn't work with barbarian back in the day. No, remember they were bad guys. Mm, I got you. Hills did not work with Hills the first time that occurred, which made it so monumental and special was the horseman and the midnight express because it was the first. Right. Um, number one, Barry Darso and, uh, Bill Eady were good workers. Yeah. Barry Darso was a big dude and, uh, he could go, I mean, he could work like a, you know, and he, and during these matches, if you go back and look at them, I doubt very seriously if anybody vertical suplexed Barry Darso before I did, uh, they just didn't work like that. You didn't muscle them around, you know, you didn't, it wasn't the thing to do. And, uh, we would plug one or two of those things in there that, that were just very foreign to anything they had ever done before. And that was their contribution to helping get us over. Um, I don't think they were trying to be the road warriors in any fashion. I thought they had a cool look. Their music was awesome. And the guys weren't just two big guys in there that, that didn't do anything. They, you know, they brought it and, uh, they were fun to work with. I loved it. Let's, uh, let's talk about the road warrior aspect for a minute. It sounds like what you're suggesting is demolition weren't road warrior ripoffs because they could work, but perhaps powers of pain were no, they had their own thing. You know, warlord was six, seven, and I want to say he was damn near 400 pounds when he was at his biggest. If he didn't want to go down, he wasn't going to go down, and he didn't go down much. He was the biggest of all those guys. And when he was at his biggest, my God, was he a monster. Him and Barb, uh, they were not big bumpers. Um, what you saw was absolutely legitimate when they did their bench press angle with the Road Warriors. I was in the gym over on South Boulevard right here in Charlotte where we trained. I can't remember the name of the gym. It was a Gold's, and then it became something else. But when they were going to do this bench press angle with the Road Warriors, those guys took it serious. And, buddy, they were training. I walked in one day, and uh, Warlord and Barb had 535 on the incline. This was not a Smith machine. On the incline doing sets of five to those gym folks out there. I saw it with my own eyes. You'll know what I'm talking about. That's impressive. Um, so there was room for one team like that. Out, in my opinion, per company. And that was it. If you got two of those guys in the same ring, two teams, there wasn't going to be a lot of falling down, which translated into not a lot of action and a lot of not a lot of storytelling. Just four monsters that 
can't get the best of each other. I don't know how exciting that would be. Did you know going into this match that uh, the Bulldogs were finishing up? I mean, you alluded to the 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 issue that, and fans know the story of of Dynamite and Jocker Joe, and Jock finally gets revenge with a, a roll of quarters. But uh, this is it for the Bulldogs; they're done after this. Did you know that before you went out there? I didn't know anything about them having that kind of heat. Um, I knew that the Bulldogs ribbed everybody. You know, it was pretty stout, and ribbing was pretty rampant before this deal went down. Um, but as far as specifics, no, I didn't. Let's uh, let's move it on here, and let's talk about uh, the next match. We've got Andre the Giant and Dino Bravo and Rick Rude and Harley Race and Kurt Henning taking on Jim Duggan, Jake Roberts, Scott Casey, Ken Patera, and Tito Santana. I'm sure we'll talk about some of these other talents another time, but I wanted to ask you specifically about Ken Patera, uh, the old roommate and friend of Ric Flair. Of course, he's going to have a, a brush up with the law and an incredibly strong human being and quite the character to say the least. Do you have any interesting Ken Patera stories? I'm embarrassed to say I never saw Ken Patera work. Wow. And then something, um, I just, you know, whether I was doing something else, if he was on the card with me, and I don't think he was there very long that I was there. If my recollection is correct, you would know probably more than me. I know that he was legitimate as far as the weightlifting went. When he was on the gas, he looked absolutely incredible. Um, and hey, he was a you know Olympic weightlifter. First, I think he was the first guy to put five hundred pounds over his head, and that and that is claim to fame. Yeah, something like that. I mean, that's that's ridiculous. Um, Kenny was always a gentleman. Uh, I wasn't around him very much, and I I can't I don't have the recollection of seeing him ever actually in a match. But I can't imagine him be a bump and a fool either. Who's uh? Who do you think was the who was the, the real tough guy on the, the heel side, Andre Dino, Rick Rude, Harley, or Kerr Henning? Well, Harley for sure. And probably Rick Rude. It's amazing Rick that with all that, you know, especially with Andre on the side, obviously Andre can do what he wants, but you've heard that, you know, Harley race was a legitimate badass, And I think everybody has thought that about Rick Rude for a long time. Yeah, Rick Rude, uh, you didn't mess with Rick Rude. You know, he was, uh, he was a great guy, but, you know, when it was business, time to deal with business and take care of business, he was very serious. And he took his business very uh, serious and personal, and he wanted to go out and he wanted to get over and he wanted to get it, the match over. And uh, we had always heard from the guys, you know, that Rude was tough. And uh, I believe it. Let's just say we put Andre in his own category, you know. Uh, he's not in the mix. And Harley, the stories of him knocking guys out in bars with one short left or, you know, my God, those things are legendary. So we're going to finish our four-match card. That's right. There's just four matches here uh, with a 29-minute win for Hercules, Hillbilly Jim, Coco Beware, Hulk Hogan, and Randy Savage. Uh, it's gotta be one of the first times that Hercules, Hillbilly Jim and Coco Beware were in a main event. 
and they're going to get a win over Akeem, Big Boss Man, Haku, the Red Rooster, and Ted DiBiase. And the uh, the heel manager collection on the heel side is incredible. Uh, Bobby Heenan, Slick, and Virgil are pulling out all the stops here with the bad guy managers. Um, we start to see a little bit of a tease that the Red Rooster uh, is going to be uh, becoming a baby face because both Heenan and Slick are yelling at him when he loses the fall. We've spent a lot of time, for better or worse, talking about Terry Taylor and the Red Rooster, Red Rooster character on some of my podcasts. Do you got any good Terry Taylor stories you can share with us? Well, I mean, Terry Taylor, being Terry Taylor, was a good, solid worker. You know, he was very good. Uh, the Red Rooster thing sucked. That was a rib. Everybody knew it was a rib. For a grown-ass man in the middle of a fight to start clucking don't fly for me. Sorry. And it didn't fly for the audience. Uh, it was just one of those things that, and had Terry not went with it full bore and, and, you know, it would have just buried him. I don't know if it didn't bury him anyway, because fans don't forget they're not signing your checks, but down the road, if you go to go to another company and you did something so damn silly up there that it just crucified what you had been prior to that. They weren't going to react to you. And if they didn't react to you and you didn't get over with that next company, guess what? You might be retired. And that's the reason we were so thankful that if they want to stick Brain Busters as a tag on us, that's fine. You know, they didn't give us any issues about our work our costuming, any of those things. We were very grateful because I saw some really bad gimmicks up there that no one could have pulled off. And it was just for what was considered entertainment value. Entertainment for who? You know, that, that's your question. Are you, are the, all these guys doing this gimmick is an entertainment for a, for a uh, audience of one? then we know who that one is, or are they actually trying to do it to entertain the crowd? And some of it was just so god-awful that it just killed careers. Let's talk about that for a minute, because Ted DiBiase was a badass in Mid-South. Here he's wearing shimmery suits, and he's a cartoonish millionaire villain. The Red Rooster's got a red streak in his hair, and Terry Taylor's clucking around, and Big Bubba Rogers, who was a silent badass, is now a corrections officer who beats inmates. The one-man gang uh, is shucking and jiving, and they're calling him the African Dream as a mock of Dusty Rhodes, the American Dream, and they're even having him dance like Dusty did. And he's doing it in a dashiki, even though he's a white guy. And they've got Coco Beware here with a fucking bird. Uh, hillbilly Jim is yucking it up like a local yokel and you are just here in your plain trunks and your plain tights and your satin jacket. How the shit did you dodge this bullet? I stuck with the, the four horsemen doctrine. Once I was there long enough. I could go out and do, and it didn't take very long. Once I got past the first six months or so, I could go out and just do what I did. And that was get guys over, get matches over, 
bust my ass, try to make you at least for that 20 minutes believe that something plausible was going on in the ring. We didn't have a gimmick we had to adhere to, and we could just go out and just work our ass off. In a lot of cases, when guys were working 30 and, you know, and that day, right towards the end, here was the schedule. You were on um, 10 days on, three days off, five days on, three days off. And then it would start over again. And you start doing the math on that. You're only home six days a month. Two of those are travel days. Okay, so that brings it down to four days a month. You got to repack one day. So that gives you like two clean days a month to be home, which is horrifying. And that took its toll on guys. And where guys would cut corners would be, you know, they wouldn't go out and just bust their ass some nights if the house wasn't good or you were in a small town or, you know, they had traveled you to death that day. You know, they'd they'd take a little bit of a, a coffee break. And not, you know, certainly not everybody, but some guys would. We never did. Uh, we gave you the same match in front of 3,000 people in Poughkeepsie that we would give you in the garden. And I think that's what sustained us. Um, they never tried to mess with us as far as giving us some, some stupid gimmick or doing something that just was just foolish. Um, so that's how we dodged the bullet. I think they just, they knew what they had. Vince actually said to us one time, and I don't remember when it was, but he said, you guys give credibility to my company, which was one of the things I never forgot. It's, it's, uh, was probably the biggest compliment he ever gave us. Hypothetically, if he would have tried to uh, put a bird on your shoulder or put you in overalls or made you cluck, would it have been not no, but hell no. And you just would have ridden it out and Turner. Oh, who's to say what I would have done. Um, I know that, uh, I wouldn't have been very good just being some jack off character. You know, my entertainment skills are not that good. It's just, so, it, it's weird to think about, you know, your old buddy, Barry Darso, he's going to come into such a great spot here with demolition and become one of the all time greats. You know, people still talk about demolition as being one of the best tag teams ever. And certainly a team that made a lot of childhood memories for guys, my age. I mean, they were one of my favorite tag teams as a kid, but man, his next character, it's a goddamn repo, man. It's just hard to imagine Arn Anderson and a character like the repo man. Well, what I'd have probably done is stole a plane ticket home. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I would have repoed. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things to where it, it just, it was what it was. And you saw a lot of things, just like you said, you know, you, you got one man gang who was Jesus. What was he? Six, nine, six, yeah. 10, Monster. 400 pounds. Looked incredible. That one man gang Mohawk and his, you know, his jean jacket and all that. He, he scared you to death. So what do you do? You make a fool out of him. You know, he's the dan he's the dancing bear. It had to just be for entertainment value. That's all but but for the boss. Because it wasn't getting over. And you just took a big guy that had a proven track record and you just kill him completely off. Let's talk about uh in this era, 
you know, you come through the curtain, you finished your match. You said that you thought it was a difficult match and it was, you know, shits. Do you shower and hit the road right away? Or in this era, are you expected to, uh, quote unquote, pay your respects and stick around and watch the rest of the rest of the matches in today's today's world back then 1988 what were you doing uh, oh um no you would you would sit there and try to figure out what went wrong and you would while it was fresh in your head try to fix it for the next day okay this didn't work uh, i'm gonna try this and you would go ahead and document it and, and put it in your mind dedicate it to memory and uh, you would get a shower because there was always a trip after the show. It was either a flight, like I said, 6 o'clock. That's on the plane in the air. That means a 4 o'clock wake up if you're staying right there at the airport. If you're on late and you don't get back till 12, time you eat something and get to sleep, it's 2. You're up at 4. Do the math. You've had a pretty long day, so... Guys wouldn't hang around when they were done. They were allowed to leave, and they should have been with the travel schedule that they were under. Meltzer would say of this card, overall, this was the best-booked major card in years, at least as far as the ones I've seen. The announcing, the announcing was excellent as well, particularly Jesse Ventura, who was far more prepared than he was at WrestleMania. The camera work was just fine. Overall, it was as good of a show as the quality of the matches and workers involved would allow. Of course, it's also the first time we get a tease. Have a little bit of a rift between Hulk Hogan and the Macho Man. Of course, they win the match and they're your sole survivors, but there is a tease. There's trouble a brewing. Uh, this is going to wrap up your first pay per view in the WWF. You've been a part of several big events for Jim Crockett Promotions. Overall, were you happy with the experience? You know, of working a big WWF pay per view. How did it compare to working a pay per view for JCP? Well, on on the you know for Jim Crockett it was. If you try to compare that match to being in a cage with the Rock and Roll Express with Ole as a partner, no comparison. I was fortunate enough to be in some big matches, some war games, you know, some singles with Dusty, wrestling the Road Warriors in Chicago comes to mind, you know, a lot of things. Being on the Rock and Roll uh, Summer Sizzler Tour, Ole and I with uh, Rock and Roll Express running around after the bashes for a week and to smaller towns and see Florence, South Carolina do 44 grand, which was unheard of back in the day. All those things considered, we were just a small part of a bigger picture with WWF. And then when you're surrounded by that many guys in one of those matches, you know, it's just pitch up and smear for 40 minutes. That's really all you walk away from. And if in those days, I guess the audience was fine. If the physicality was good and they were excited and the spots were good, they were happy. And if they were happy, the office was happy and so on and so forth. We're in the relative infancy of pay-per-view. Before a big show like that, do one of the agents or, or Vince McMahon get everybody together and do a bit of a rah-rah speech or run through any sort of news or notes that you need to know in particular about the show? No. No. Vince is in his office. If you have to go talk to him, you have to get a, you know, invite. You got to be outside his door, let somebody know that you're trying to get in to see him and all that. There's not a, 
there's not okay guys we got a full house because you had full houses all the time back then it was uh wasn't that that big a deal it would just be on the agents and that's where jack lanza was really good if you asked him a question he would try to get you an answer and uh i love jack david hebner another good guy should mention just uh, one year prior to this you're uh, in chicago wrestling the road warriors just like you talked about starcade 87 and now a year later you're here at survivor series if you would have told Arn Anderson, Starcade 87, hey, a year from now, you'll be uh, on the WWF Survivor Series pay-per-view. You think you would have believed it? Nope. If you would have told me that they would have let me go or thought that it was the right thing to let me go or after that match with the Road Warriors, if for any reason... We would have been in any kind of turmoil and or jeopardy or even an argument about positioning. You could probably count on one hand the guys on earth that could have pulled off the match, making the Road Warriors in Chicago, in their hometown, look like they looked. Probably count them on one hand. And those guys drew money. So when you enhance part of the product that's already drawing money and you make them look as good as they can possibly look, you accomplish something. Uh, so no, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have skipped ahead for a year and, and saw that I was standing on the apron with 15 other guys, the Bolsheviks and the conquistadors. Let's talk about the, uh, the real human aspect of this date. I think it gets lost on uh, a lot of our listeners that, November 24th, 1988, the day of the show is Thanksgiving here in America. Uh, what was the, what was the Thanksgiving spread? Like the events cater Thanksgiving. When you get to go home, do you do a late Thanksgiving with the family or is that not even a holiday that wrestlers got to experience? Oh, it's probably right in the middle of a loop, probably in the middle of a 10 day or, uh, I mean, yeah, okay, they probably had turkey for catering and all that stuff, but you can't go load up. Sure. You know, you got to go get after it. Right. You know, that big deal. So uh, you didn't think about holidays, and I was already conditioned from Jim Crockett. We would work twice on uh, Christmas Day for Jim Crockett. The difference was we would go down to Greenville, which was a two-hour drive, do a one o'clock show, throw on a pair of sweats, come back to Charlotte. Charlotte Coliseum would be sold out that night, Christmas night. So you missed pretty much, if you had little kids, you missed most of the day. You could get up with them first thing in the morning and open presents and all that. But you had to head out, you know, about, uh, oh gosh, probably about mm, 10 o'clock in the morning to go down to Greenville and back. But you made a nice payday. It was It was beneficial because... That nice Christmas that your kids just had, you paid for it that day by working that double shot. And we were used to working on holidays. There was no such thing as a day off. It did not exist. 85, once I arrived there until we left, 88, there was no such thing as a day off. If you got hurt, you went to work. If you wanted to get off to, to get married or something, you might get one or two days off, but it's very, very rare. And uh, so we were accustomed to working on Thanksgiving Day. 
Well, we're accustomed to doing uh, ask Arn anything, and that's what we're going to do next week. If you've got a question for Arn, follow us on Twitter. It's at the Arn Show, and uh, look near the top. You'll see it pinned. You can ask Arn anything you'd like, and you can certainly do that this weekend in Winston Salem for WrestleCade weekend. Join us. Keep your Thanksgiving weekend tradition alive with professional wrestling. WrestleCade is the place to be in Winston Salem, and you can get your tickets to see the Arn Show live at arnshowlive.com and we even allowed you guys to ask questions about survivor series 88 we're going to do some rapid fire questions Arn, as we put a bow on this episode are you ready sure uh ben hugh wants to know it's been noted over the years that the night before the survivor series pay-per-view you and tully faced the british bulldogs in their final wwf house show tag team match any memories in particular of that match yeah, they were, they were straight pros. They worked as hard that night as, as they had any other time I'd seen them and what a joy and a pleasure to work with them on their way out. The, uh, I think a lot of fans have heard about how bad dynamite kids back was here. Do you remember being something that being something you guys discussed and you had to work around? You would never notice it to watch him work. Uh, he never complained. He could damn sure still do a snap suplex with no issues. So whatever pain he was fighting through, he was, he was toughing it out and, uh, he's all man. That's for sure. Austin wants to know what was the biggest major difference in terms of the presentation that you noticed between this and the starcades you had worked previously. And I think what he means presentation, he really means from a production standpoint. Well, Vince McMahon, no matter what you agree with or don't agree with as far as his in-ring product, there's no discounting the production values of that company. It's light years above anything else. And, uh, I mean, it was just the clarity of that show compared to any other show on the air. It was just so crystal clear that it looked like something else entirely. And, uh, it's like the production was a star within itself. It was a superstar. Jay Ahola writes, this is a great question. How did working in front of a WWF audience different differ from working in front of a JCP audience? Of course, we're talking about the crowds and the type of fans. This has to be different, right? There's more kids in the WWF crowd, maybe more families. JCP is more hardcore traditional wrestling fans or am I way off base? Well, you had more angles uh, on a JCP show. You know, every most if you made the pay-per-view, that meant that you had something decent going on on TV. You know, you would have a hodgepodge of guys working together on a WWF pay-per-view. It didn't necessarily mean you had done anything with them on television. You were just thrown out there in, in, in a match, and it was based on just star power versus story. So it was a lot easier to work. The one thing that was really, and I mentioned earlier, that was really strange was to have 10,000 or 12,000 people stand up and have the four fingers in the air and to just kind of have to look at them and do something with your hands and ignore them. And you could see it on their faces. Um not being able to do that and give that back to them was, was I'm sure one of those things that they were talking about on the car on the way home. Ralph Lazowski writes, 
was the payout for this show better than a Jim Crockett pay-per-view? We've always heard you made more money in the WWF. Uh, I'm sure it was, but this wouldn't be a real high, uh, payoff because you had so many guys and that was a very real thing. You know, if you were in a match, you were in a six man tag, whatever that payoff was going to be was split six ways instead of if you're in a single match and say you were second or third from last, it was a whole different deal. And the more guys that were in the match. So, but you know, it, it would have been something that you would have been happy with, um, I just looked at it. It was another day of work, it, you know, okay. It's a pay-per-view and it's got a title and you got all these guys on the card, but that's for one day's work. And I would look at that number and go, damn, nobody else out there. I'm not qualified to do anything else on this earth and make that kind of money for one day. So I ain't going to bitch too loud. Well, we're not going to bitch. If you come see us this weekend in Winston-Salem, orangeshowlive.com is where you can pick up your tickets. The easiest way to support the show is to pick up a shirt at arnshirts.com. That's a R N shirts.com. We'll be back next week with hashtag ask Arn anything. Be sure to ask your question on Twitter at the Arn show and tune in the following week, December 10th. We're going to talk about Arn's very first Starcade, Starcade 85. We discovered his first WWF pay-per-view. Now we'll cover his first major show with Jim Crockett promotions. Stay tuned for that. And so much more. Leave us a five-star review. If you think we deserve it, hit that subscribe button and tell a friend about Arn every Tuesday here on Westwood one. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together. It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.